Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode 20, part one. No, uh, we don't know for sure we're going to do a part two, but we're talking shooting today, which, guys, I have literally never seen Philippe this excited. Like, he's, oh, guys, I have so much to share. I'm so excited. All Philippe likes to do is shoot, apparently. And so this topic today is going to be really good from that perspective. But for those of you guys that aren't watching, um, you can't see that Philippe's wearing a Real Madrid jersey, which got us tra- chatting before we started recording and talking specifically about how at the top level, there are games and teams where even winning a championship isn't good enough. Andy, you were just talking about Lille and PSG in a game that ended in a tie, am I right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure whether it was Lille or not. Oh, okay. you know, just, just last week, you know, the PSG won the French League, and uh, as they were winding down to win the league with the tie, the, the PSG friends were booing their own team. <laughs> You know, because they they were only tired. Yeah. You know, and and uh, you know, I thought to myself, that's disgusting. You know, you're supposed to be fans of this team. They're winning the domestic league, and the PSG fans have got such a you know a high level of expectation that you know it's just not good enough to win the league. You got to you know, win the league undefeated. <laughs> how how spoiled are you? You know, I'm a Leeds United fan, and we've been out of the EPL until the last couple of years here. You know, and you know, just hoping to claw our way back into the EPL. And thank God, an American came to save the day, huh? Uh, it's not looking too good right now. Are they not yeah. back up? I haven't looked in the last oh, few weeks. No, you know, Everton has, has uh, you know won a big game last weekend, and. You know, Leeds are in a precarious position now, you know. And Ooh. Yeah, so it's really, really close. And Leeds have got a really tough run in. They've got some really tough teams that they're due to play against. You know, and so I've been grateful for years for the scraps off of the table. And these PSG spoiled brats, you know, <laughs> and I'm not talking to the players. I'm talking to the fans that, that have had, you know, French league after French league. It's an expectation. It's, that's just not good enough anymore. You know, you have to win, and you have to win going away in style. You know, and I know that PSG's got more money than God. You know, and if God's got money, and God's got a lot. <laughs> got a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure of the logic of that statement, obviously, but but uh, I was disgusted with the attitude of the fans. But then again, you know, I'm kind of disgusted with how much money rules the roost because sure. the richest clubs can buy the best players. And so, you know, for all of the accolades we give, you know, Pep Guardiola, you know, and Jurgen Klopp, you know, they're incredibly well-funded sure. in a way that, you know, teams like Leeds are not, mm-hmm. you know. And so they should be winning these, these big things because they can afford, you know, the De Bruyne's of the world, you know, and pay huge dollars for that type of player, you know. And so, you know, but we're in an expectation level in, in this society in the U.S., we want so much more. We never have enough. Well, you know, we're living the life of Riley, as my dad used to say, which means that we've got the best life of any country in the planet in terms of standards of living, you know, at least for our upper middle and upper classes, you know, and yet that's not enough. Mm-hmm. You, know, and, you know, still we want bigger houses, we want bigger boats, we want bigger, faster cars, you know, and all the trappings of superstardom, you know, and, that, and there's this insatiable hunger you know, and I'm in a stage of my life where, I, you know, I just want to get rid of stuff. You know, it's, you know, I'm, I'm on much my wife younger all the than time. you, but I feel the same. Like, let's just throw <laughs> this out. We don't need it. It, it, it complicates things, yeah. you know. I, you know, I, people that know me know that I wear Legends gear all the time. And black. Yeah. Only black, black Legends gear. Only Legends If you invite Andy gear. to your wedding, he'll, he might have a black jacket. Over his black legends. Um, I swear T-shirt. I could see the legends logo on my way underneath <laughs> his bottom shirt. <laughs> and, and, but why? It's because it, it simplifies things. You never know when there might be somebody that needs to be coached. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of truth there, in that. There, there's a funny story about that. There, there's a, an, a singer, an artist in Brazil, super famous. And every day he would go on a jog on the beach and paparazzi would take pictures of him. So he started dressing with the same outfit. It was a uh, black shorts and a white t-shirt and the same pair of shoes so 
the picture wasn't new again because he's wearing the same clothes, so the paparazzi stopped. <laughs> That's pretty clever. But but okay, so but we talk about like that PSG you know, anecdote, right? In terms of the fans weren't happy with the tie, even though they were winning the league for however many years in a row. Although I think last year Lil won it, if I remember yeah, right. They did. Yeah. So but but right, they weren't happy with it. And you can t- go down this vein, right? Which we started to in terms of enough isn't enough, and we're not you know we're, we're we we expect more always. But you can also go down this perspective. And I think it kind of is a, connects with us in a greater degree, which is the fans weren't happy because they wanted to be entertained. And the sport of soccer is at its best when it's entertaining. And the most entertaining por- portion or moment of a game is always what? A goal. A goal. Right? And like, and, no, and, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, disagree or you know, just add something to that. It's a goal with something incredible before yes. it. Oh, and it's sure. a goal that is incredible in itself in terms of the quality of the finish. Yes. You know, and that makes it something special. That brings this moment of ecstasy out, right? And right. Like, and sometimes, like, I'd be all right watching my team lose 5-4 if those four goals were just absolute mm-hmm. bombs, right? You know, otherworldly goals. Because ultimately, like, I, I watched the game to be entertained. I'm not a pragmatist. I don't watch the game or coach the game to just win 0-0 or tie or win 0-0, tie 0-0, or tie 1-1 or eke out a 1-0 win. Like I want big moments. Um and and I think that that our game is at its best when that's what it's producing. I agree. I exactly. Agree. Yeah. You know, and and uh, the 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 worst goal, you know, we'll take it obviously, but the worst goal is that that horrible own goal. You know that you know, one of your teammates, you know, scores. You know, hopefully, it's not you that scores the own goal. Do you remember we were playing at 99th? We were probably U12 ish, newly just got the Lotto Legends uniforms that kind of became the staple of our childhood, um, and uh, and that was back before they changed the rule, and you could throw the ball to your keeper and he could pick it up. And so we had been on the string of you were talking about restarts need to be quick, right? Whether it's a foul whether it's a goal kick, whether it's a corner kick, whether it's, whether it's, a, whether it's a throw in, do it quick, right? Catch the opponents off, sorry, let's, off, um, off balance, off guard, right? Let's play at a really high pace. And I could zing the ball as a throw in. Like I was quite proud of how far I could throw the ball. And I was near midfield when I picked up the ball and look and just launch one towards uh, Matt Wesley, our goalkeeper. And um, I think it was Matt. And uh, anyway, so I go to throw it back to him. We're winning 5 nothing. All we have to do is a cl- keep a clean sheet, and we go to the final. It catches Matt Wesley off guard, the keeper off guard. He sticks his hand out to grab it. It hits his hand and goes in the back of the net. We won 5-1. We did not advance to the final because I threw the ball in my own net. <laughs> do you remember that? <laughs> That's I, fantastic. I, I don't remember the specific situation, but I have to say it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I must have thrown it in from near midfield. That's the moment that the coach looks at the player and like, I don't even know what to say. There's no coaching point. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's yeah, it's common sense. I get. I mean, but you know, for the you for just the, don't have it for the education of our audience. That's just who you are. You when, know, when you say we're going to play quick, I'm going to play quick. I was trying to lean into the coaching point. No, look, but but the, the, the point is it's supposed to be quick with thought, you know, as well as action. You know, please engage brain before acting. You know. Engage brain. Like, like look and see if the goal is ready and say, Matt, are you ready? You know, and, and, you know, but, but no, you it's, know, it's... I mean, to bring it back to the topic of today's podcast, right? That was the most creative shot probably that's ever been taken in uh, Legends history. And so uh, shooting's the topic du jour today. And so we'll start with the most creative one, which is that fantastic throw in I made um, and uh, move from there. So, Andy, what began your fascination with shooting? The fact that I was terrible at it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm being honest. <laughs> How does this work exactly? You know, and, and uh, so as I as I got further into coaching, you know, I had to analyze why it was that I was a good passer, you know, and why it was that you know that I was tough in the tackle and rugged, you know, and people couldn't get around me because of my controlled aggression, sometimes not so controlled aggression, and and uh, you know, and and why was it that I didn't have any moves, and why was it that I couldn't score? And, you know, and, and I realized that, you know, it was down to 
both a philosophy and the environment that I grew up in. You know, and uh, did I tell the story about the windows breaking the windows? I don't think you. I've heard the story before. I don't think we've ever told the podcast the story. No. Right. So, so you know, this is very relevant. You know, uh, I lived in a working class area of Oxford, and and uh, out of the back of the house that that my parents moved us into when when I was about six years of age, um, there was a a little patch of wall, and my father, one of the first <laughs> things he did when he moved us in, because. You know, eventually he put extensions on the house and all sorts of stuff. He put a concrete patio out there, you know, that was great for, you know, dribbling around and, you know, working with the ball. But more than anything, it was really good for rebounding softly underneath the lounge window, which was a window made up of, you know, 50, 60 small square panes of glass. And, uh, and so, you know, I would stand underneath that window with my soccer ball, just tapping the ball underneath the window because my mother had threatened me, you know, with, with a butcher's knife that if I put the ball through one of the window panes, that I'd never be allowed to do this again. And of course, relatively quickly, I put the ball through one of the window panes. And, uh, and so, you know, her and dad got into a big fight about this because, you know, dad was like, you know, let him play out there, lad. We can always replace a window pane, but... You know, the, you know, this is his, his love, his imagination, and let him go for it, you know. So my dad was, a, was brilliant and saw what was happening, you know, and, you know, recognized that it was good for me, you know, to be active and, you know, to develop a skill. And, and so he taught me to replace those little window panes, you know, and he bought a big stack of them because he saw into the future that this was going to be a regular thing. You weren't a good shooter. <laughs> I wasn't even a good passer, you know, <laughs> just a little kid, you know, trying to develop those skills. And uh, I'd spend hours at it. And once every couple of weeks, you know, especially on the front end, I'd break, a, you know, a window pane, you know, and then he'd take me down to the garage, get another pane and he'd get, you know, get the brads and, you know, give me the, the cleaning knife to get the putty out of the window frame and how to get it all cleaned out, you know, how to brad in the new window pane and then how to putty so that it was watertight, you know, and over the years, I became really good at replacing window panes. I could do it in my sleep today, you know, because of all the hundreds of window panes I broke and replaced. And, uh, and yeah, I was terrible. <laughs> You're laughing at me. Um, but here's the thing. I became really good on my feet in terms of getting my body in position to, to receive the ball, you know, and one touch, you know, uh, you know, with the reception and then one touch back to pass it against the wall. And also first touching, you know, when the ball wasn't coming back too hard to me. So I became a very good passer. What did I not become? A very good finisher. Because I couldn't tee off on the ball. I couldn't smash it. I couldn't, you know, deliver that 25-yard bomb and, you know, and try and bend it. You know, I was too close to the wall. The patio was maybe 10 feet. So I was about eight feet away from the wall the whole time. And all I could do was pity pat, pity pat back against the wall. And so I developed very specific skills, you know, and they became my staples, my go-tos, which was really good receiving ability, really good passing ability, you know, and the ability to give it to somebody that could do the really good stuff, you know, that beat players and score great goals, but never be in that player myself. But I became a box-to-box -box central midfielder my whole youth career because I worked hard, you know, I, I was accurate with passes and I was that quote-unquote really good team player that everybody likes to play with because I, I didn't get out of my box and I, I didn't think I was all that in a bag of chips, you know, to use an English saying. You stayed narrow in terms of your, your, your repertoire of play. Right, and I, and I never learned to <laughs> do the really, really special things that make people world famous or, you know, that, that make Philippe a professional player. So let me point this out before we segue to Philippe's fascination with shooting and where that came from is, is that we talk about on the top of this podcast as part of our ongoing intro every time is that it's the convergence of environment and culture that develops players, right? And your environment was a 10 by 10 patio, right? With a small brick area, uh, a small brick wall with a, a goal over it. That was the environment in which you developed. Right. But the culture of your family was a culture in which like, let's go let him do it. And if he breaks the window, we'll teach him how to fix it. Not so much. 
gosh, my mom hated it. Sure, but, but, but my dad. But but your dad the, was the prevailing or whatever. It it, it allowed in, that culture to East End of London. You know yeah. where Alf Ramsey, so many of the great players, Jimmy Greaves, Rodney Marsh, came from the East End of London. You know, and very skillful players. And and you know, Ramsey managed the team that won the World Cup in 1966. You know, and so they grew up rebounding tennis balls against walls. And, yeah. You know, and developing the skills. So my dad got it. Yeah. My mum had no interest in sports. <laughs> You know, so she didn't get it. All she could see that I was I was putting glass into her lounge every time <laughs> I, I broke a window. And these are before shop backs exist. <laughs> Our yeah. parents were very similar in that aspect. My dad ha- had no problem and under- understood anything and stimulated and fought my mom because of it because my mom was the same thing. My mom never watched me play soccer. But that <laughs> convergence of environment and culture for you, Andy, was was a was a building block, an important one in terms of the the rest of your career, the rest of your playing career, all of that. And like when, you know, those listening, when you think about those coaches that are listening or those parents that are listening, when you think about how you coach or how you parent related specifically to the game, think about it from those two perspectives, the culture that you've created within your home or within your team and the environment in which you've created. And are those pointed in the direction for the player that you want to develop? And if they're not, rethink your culture and rethink your environment. So so there's a good story. There's, There's a guy called Abraham Wald. And, you know, he was a, um, you know, on the Allied side during the Second World War, and he changed their whole approach to planes, you know, and reinforcing, you know, fighters, fighter planes, you know, like the Spitfire, uh, you know, based on, you know, what he saw happening with returning planes from, from combat. And so, so, you know, people were looking at the planes that returned, and they were saying, you know, where are the holes? You know, where do we re- need to reinforce to make sure we don't lose planes? And the holes were mostly in the body of the aircraft, but not in the engine compartment area. You know, and so, so they, they started putting reinforcement onto the body of the aircraft and making it heavier and less maneuverable. You know, and, and Abraham Wald, you know, was, was analyzing this approach and he said, you know, guys, aren't we getting this wrong? You know, and they say, what do you mean? You know, we can see where the holes are. And he said one simple thing. He said, but these are the returning planes. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is what we do as, as idiot human beings. You know, we see what's in front of us, but we can't think outside of the box a little bit. And he said, so where do you think the holes are on the planes that are at the bottom of the ocean now with dead pilots in them? <laughs> you know, and everybody's like, what do you mean? He said, well... They're probably in the engine, right? Because <laughs> the engine's what gets you back to, to to Britain after combat, you know. And so we're looking at where the holes are on the on the planes that got home, you know. And and so how does that relate to me doing, you know, that tippy tap against the back wall of the house, you know? I, you know, the, I was looking at the wrong problem. I needed to be a great finisher, a great shooter, because great finishers, great shooters, are always technically great passers because they're doing the most difficult release skill of the game. You know, but I was looking at the, you know, the, the rest of the holes in the fuselage you know, and just tapping it back because that was the environment I had. I wasn't recognizing that I needed to be in an environment where I could absolutely smash the ball you know, and, and do that thousands of times a day instead of this tippy-tap, tippy-tap on your toes because I was developing mediocrity as a habit instead of developing incredible abilities as a habit. So my ball striking was all mini passes, you know, which stood me in decent opportunity for the future, you know, and, but, because I got paid for playing, you know, but I could never break through to the highest level because I didn't have that ability to deliver a 50 yard ball on a dime that I would have had if I had just shot when I was a kid. If that makes sense. You and I are similar because I also got paid for playing, but it was I scored so seldom that my mom gave me a couple bucks when the ball <laughs> did end up in the back. <laughs> Philippe, where did you develop your fascination? Are you sure shooting? she gave you anything? <laughs> I mean, it's and it, it it sounds silly to say, but it, it feels like it's something natural for a Brazilian that kind of fascination because especially oh, throw it from in the our face, yeah. No, <laughs> This happens every time, and getting fed up of this Brazilian superiority culture. It, it, I mean, it's not—it's not necessarily superiority culture. It's just, just the kidding. reality of it, you know. <laughs> yeah, um. it is the reality of it, honestly. You know, and it's the reality that anybody that's emulated Brazil has done well yep. on on the world level. Yeah. 
So, I mean, especially when I was born in the early 90s and the players that Brazil had, I oftentimes sent Andy videos of highlights from Brazilian players that he has never heard of. And he always replies like, that's fascinating. I mean, they're incredible. Like back in those days, 90s and early 2000s, some of the best Brazilian players didn't really go to Europe. They stayed. And so we had so many unbelievable strikers and attacking mids. It was incredible. So you see games from, you know, in Rio, where I'm from, Vasco, Botafogo, Flamengo, Fluminense, all the number nines or tens, they're fighting for spots in the national team. So, I mean, it was so fun. Like, Romario was playing at Vasco at the time, Edmundo, like, amazing players. And you just see these guys scoring, 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 scoring. They're literally competing for, like, the, the top scoring position of the league by, like, so many goals ahead of, like, the other ones. And you had seven, eight guys like that uh, on the league. So it was fantastic to, to see and watch. So as a kid, similar to Andy, I had like a like a a garage in my house in my house that we didn't really park the cars there and it it's similar honestly to the box soccer course that we had here they're a little more narrow probably and and longer but same concept it was all boarded and you know the walls were were brick walls so it was perfect and all i did was after I watched anything cool on the TV, like any skill, or later on Ronaldinho doing the freestyle stuff and the skills, I would do, that's what I would do. I would be in that area of my house for three, four hours every day. Sometimes when I had friends over, I, me and one friend playing one-on-one and, you know, just playing with the ball, you know. And, but most of the times by myself. And most of what I did was either put chairs whatever around even the house itself or you know obstacles there and dribble around train skills that i saw blah 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 or i would do a lot of juggling a lot and that was probably not the smartest thing but i didn't have anybody to tell me not to do it and spend time doing other things but the shooting was what i did the most by far like i always thought of the side walls as the post and i was always trying to bend or smash in the intersection of the post Love it. and the wall. That's literally all I did. Ph- all I did. Philippe and, and I are about 10 years apart. I'm 10 years older. I think you're 28, right? 29. 29. So Almost nine 30. years apart. Um, so I'm older than Philippe. So we never had the opportunity to play together because by the time Philippe was in the office, it, like it, like our, our office team kind of disappeared. But I have seen... On repeat, a goal that he scored at Mid-American Nazarene University, coming in from the left and just letting out an absolute bomb from 35 yards out. And like, so like, I know that you that you love to shoot because that shot specifically is is just fantastic. And you don't develop the ability to make that shot without a a deep deep love for shooting. Oh, the willingness to shoot from that. I mean, we were at that point. That game was funny because. The assistant coach from that game is now my captain at the Comets team. So that's when he saw me for the first time. Um, and he helped me, you know, through the process, you know, kind of with signing and everything like that. So thank you, Sosa. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, were, we went down 3-0 in the first 15 minutes um, at Benedictine. And the guy who scored the three goals plays with me, Adam James. On that game, he scored three goals. We came back halftime. Our coach switches our formation. I scored within four minutes into the half. I scored a nice goal. Ball came in the air. I controlled it down and and hit it uh, in the corner. And then, like two minutes after, I get that ball, and that's thir- I mean, 39 minutes left in the in the f- second half, and I cut in and I smash it, and we go three two. And we almost die, and we press, blah, blah, blah. And then the same guy, Adam, scored the fourth goal at the very end uh, after PK. Um, but anyway, so it was a great game. But, yeah, even today in my comments, if any of my teammates are, are listening, they'll laugh because every time we're tr- in practice, you know, when practice gets a little more relaxed and stuff, and I get the ball and I cut in or I beat somebody, everybody's like, Shoot, 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 <laughs> shoot, shoot, Philippe. And like when sometimes I'm like ha- half of the field still and like 
you know, the best option is the best. But, like, they know that <laughs> if the p- opportunity comes, I don't think twice. And unless the guy is completely open and I know if I pass that, I'm smashing that baby. Right. I, I just, I just love, it gives me pleasure. Uh, one of the things that I remember every time I have an older sister and when nowadays we're best friends, but back in the days, I mean, we would argue and fight constantly. Every time I, I, we fought and I was angry, I would go to my soccer area and I would think of my sister as the ball and I would smash <laughs> the ball. And I think that's why I, I was <laughs> able to... her face on the, the ball. One time that I doesn't bode well for your wife, <laughs> does no, it? Does <laughs> <laughs> I can see her curls coming down just on <laughs> well, the outside of the ball. Well, she loves the fact that I go to practice every day and I come back calmer, you know, because I release <laughs> all my competitive nature and, you know, so every time... Yeah, baby, you're right. I, I got to be honest, Philippe. You know, I've seen that video of you scoring that that 35 yard goal, and I, I think the video was doctored. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I'm, There's I'm not, no way someone could do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, you know, but but you know that was too good. It, you know, there's no way that that somebody that plays at the collegiate level could score a goal like that. So uh, <laughs> appreciate it. Um, but yeah, and besides that, the only the other thing that I think makes a difference and now turning to nowadays it doesn't happen anymore brazil always produced the best free kick takers it was um, since it, it, it still happens but you know, not as much and like we there but are, his, his, it, and you there know, are the, reasons for it and we're stats, gonna get there the stats are massive brazil is the number one exporter in the world of soccer talent Sure. You know, why is that? Because they, you know, the the society creates great dribblers and goal scorers. You know, they don't import a Brazilian to man mark people. You know, they might employ a, you know, a working class English guy. They can get a cheaper guy to do that. Yeah, that's right. You know, and and play a cheaper game, nastier game. It's easier to teach that. Sure. And then you can buy the talent. You yeah. don't need to waste time yeah. developing it. Yeah, you, you know, when money. I was growing up, Vinnie Jones type characters were two in two a penny. You know, that every team had two or three guys that were there to be enforcers, you know, and literally to kick the dribblers and make sure that people didn't, you know, get too creative. I don't know Vinnie Jones, but that name just suggests to me that I'd rather have him on my team. Than oh, <laughs> watch, a, watch a movie called Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. You know, and and uh, Vinnie Jones is a star in, in that movie. And he's a gangster in the East End of London. Number one, you won't understand a word because they use a lot of Cockney rhyme and slang. It's not English. Like, yeah, the apples and pears means up the stairs. You know, and so, you know, you've got to translate the rhyme and slang in the movie. You know, but he was a rough character. There is actually a photograph, you know, and I'm going to be PG on this, but, you know, in the middle of a game, there's a photograph of him grabbing Paul Gascoigne's crown jewels, you know, and just at the moment that he was literally at his whole crown jewels, which is, you know, the groin area. I think we got it. In his hand, you know. Can I get, you know, I need to elaborate a little bit more. No, but uh, he, had, he had Paul's, you know, crown jewels in his hand. And Gascoigne literally at that moment is, <laughs> you know, just screaming. And it became a famous photograph in England. Oh, you know, cool. Vinnie Jones was, you know, that guy that you would usually meet, you know, in, in a top security prison. <laughs> And you they know, let him out on Saturdays in, to play. In, in the showers, <laughs> if you know what I mean. You know. <laughs> well, coming back to... In to Brazil, we have those players that we used to call them the butchers. The butchers, yeah. yeah. Coming back to the, to, to the shooting side of things, like, um, you know, the, our club, Legends, has been around for a very, very long time, right? So 89, I think, is our official year. Um, and um, the evolution that has occurred from a from a, a, a shooting environment perspective has been profound. I remember as a youth player playing for Andy, we had two ways in which we trained shooting most often. Um, one was wall ball, which was a two-touch shooting game that I still use often with my, my kids. I think I've actually showcased it on our social fantastic. media. Um, it's a fantastic game for teaching to, you know second-time shooting, right? A good first touch and then a powerful or a bending um, or a, you know, you can teach any shot from, from it. But also first-time shooting. Some off wall ball, yeah. For yeah. the for the slower roller that was you coming can, off the you wall, you could take it first time for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. And then and then when we were outdoor, because we trained outdoor seven months of the year, um, we used a similar game that isn't nearly as efficient, but we lined up cones across the field, 
and you and your opponent would be across each other, um, and you would shoot through the cones so that we could work on a second-time shooting game or a first-time shooting game if it was a slow roller. And that environment was significantly better than other environments that exist from shooting. The traditional ones are the ones that most of the people in Kansas City, other than us, are using. Um, and I remember, we've changed from there, but I remember my dad one year got me a kickback goal. You remember the kickbacks? Yeah. It was the metal frame with the... Um, the net that that provided a rebound. And I remember my dad saying, Andy says all the kids on the team need to get this. Like, this should be something that's a staple. So, so I'm going to stop you there because Ryan Kaufman got a kickback goal as well. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. you told all the all the parents. I like, told hey, all the parents. Yep, yep and, go buy but this. the difference is Ryan became a good finisher. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he used it. Well, the environment of my backyard was a giant hill. So there was a very small space for me to create, put this kickback. We got one, but it was difficult to use. Yeah. Had, had I lived in a perfectly created backyard for shooting, it would have been a different story, most likely. Again, intersection of environment. But the questions I get now from parents isn't, how do I get a kickback goal or some type of rebound surface in my backyard? It's, hey, you've got Saul who builds all of your facilities in, the can- in, in Kansas City. Could I contract him to build a box soccer court in my basement? These are questions I've had from numerous parents. The parents in within the club are now recognizing, and the questions that they ask for the environments that they can create in their own houses for their kids is different than existed 25, 30 years ago. And as a result... I think the goals that we're seeing on video from our kids throughout the entire club unbelievable. are unbelievable and probably unbelievable compared to what they were 25, 30 years ago. I mean, just f- not, n- we're not even going to get into the skill portion of it in our videos because that's another episode. But the shots, I mean, we have kids 99 scoring from kickoff, like not even rolling the ball back, just smashing it into the co- top corner. We have kids... I mean, it's unbelievable what we see. We I mean, I had so your 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 2014 uh, Grant Krause scored yeah. a goal. I mean, a 2014 kid. He got got the ball. He just pushed the ball to the right, and he. I mean, he was probably what 20 yards old, and he smashed it into the co- top corner. The kid is seven years old. And but and he's 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 athletically on the top end, but he's not able to do that without he's box soccer. Seven. He's not able to do that without wall ball, without the technique that comes and the repetition that comes from those environments. And his dad is one of the guys who contacted who contacted so. So oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so let's 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 back up and let's look at what coaches in other clubs are doing to train shooting. And you know what I was brought up with, you know, as a as a you know kid in England, is we always did shooting, you know in and around the penalty area. And remember, that, you know, these were grass fields. And so the parks hated us using, you know, the area in and around the penalty sure, area. of course. But, you know, we always, you know, snuck in whatever we could in terms of shooting training. It is the worst area, you know, to do shooting in on the field in terms of economy of training. You have to do line drills, you know, and you can't get any type of um, pressure on the shooter because everything goes to hell in a handbasket when you start pressuring in that area. A lot of times, you know, you don't even get a shooting opportunity, you know, so they're not developing their technique if they're, if they're using the area in and around the goal. And why is it terrible? It's because every shot you take, you know, even if you put it in the net, you've still got to go and retrieve it. So there's all of this jog into the net, retrieval time. Nobody sprints. Nobody gets back to the end of the line. And it's a line drill, which is poisonous to mm. development. So we should never do line drills. And so you've got all of this wasted time. And this is what just about every other club does, is they set up shooting drills in and around the penalty area. You know, and you know, these kids get one shot every you know, minute and a half because they're in these line drills. You know, and the minute they introduce defensive op- opposition, it's, it's one worse. shot every five minutes. Yeah. You know, because it's so easy to defend, you know, and so difficult to create a shooting opportunity. And so the amount of development kids are getting is almost zero. And so coaches almost abandon shooting, you know, because it it looks so poor. It it looks is an important thing because I think coaches look, what does this session look like? It looks bad. I don't want anything of it. That's why Rondo, 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 the kids become good at it. And it looks like, oh, my kids, it's the traditional phrase. My my players are playing like Barcelona. <laughs> That's what everybody says. Yeah, We're they're playing like the Spain. Like <laughs> Spain in the in the South African World Cup. Yeah, you know, had the the unbelievable distinction that on the way to winning the World Cup, they scored a grand total of seven goals. Oh, 
Ronald- oh, I did not know that. Ronaldo because they played defense the whole time, but Ronaldo never giving the ball away. Ronaldo scored seven in 2002. <laughs> Ronaldo scored seven in 2002. Yeah, and, and Rivaldo this, scored five. This is this is an incredible stat that most people aren't aware of. I wasn't aware of. That. You know, and uh, you know, I, you know, everybody left that World Cup saying, "Yeah, it was you know, boring. It was boring. it was a terrible, terrible World Cup in terms of entertainment." And Spain, when they played, had an unbelievable percentage of possession. It was off the charts. Remember yeah. Russia? So Remember the other teams Russia? couldn't get the ball because, you know, they had Xavi, they had Iniesta. You know, they had, they had these great uh, players. Uh, in terms of squeezing out of really tight spaces and defensive pressure, they were incredible at doing that. You know, but in terms of actually creating goal-scoring opportunities, they weren't taking the risks. You know, and this is at the national level, and maybe that's justifiable when you're trying to win a World Cup because it worked, yep. you know, but it's horrible to watch and it's certainly not justifiable at the youth level. Xavi and Iniesta had to have been encouraged to go for it at the youth level to develop the skills that they had. You know, it was only later when they got involved with, you know, Barcelona that they were encouraged to play this possession game, yep. you know, and then get it to the genius, Leo Messi, you know, who got those, you know, those multiple goals that made the team look incredible. The final was boring, and they played. They played the Netherlands, and, and you almost time. and it was so boring, and you almost wonder if Nigel De Jong wasn't doing us a favor by trying to spice the game up a little bit. Yeah. You remember that well, overtime? <laughs> and in in twenty, I don't twenty fourteen. I don't think they made out of the group stage. I think their group was Costa Rica, Spain. It was all Netherlands. No, no, Netherlands. What's Netherlands? Are Netherlands, Spain, Costa Rica, and there was one more big uh, country. I think might have been Italy, and it w- went through no Uruguay, and it went through Uruguay and Costa Rica, which yep. was unbelievable. And then 2018 against Russia, they had, I think was I don't remember was either 79 or 81 percent possession, uh, and they lost the game. They went to PKs 0-0 and lost in PKs. In right, a, in right. the round of 16. So it didn't really work that well for them. So I think we've established time. in this part one of episode 20 about shooting the, Im- the importance in terms of the entertainment value and the importance, importance if you can't create and put the ball in the back of the net, you'll still, you'd still lose. Like you're still limiting your, your potential as a team or individually. Andy, w- when you started investing significant time to us as players, which I assume it happened in the late 80s, early 90s, to, to shoot, to, for shooting training, what what like what were some of your thought processes? Like, where what brought you to that place, and 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 specifically, how did you try to set up your sessions? Well, I was given a gift, you know, without perhaps realizing it, because you know I came to Kansas City in 1985 to open uh, indoor soccer and sports malls, you know, and um, you know we just you know the first one that we opened, we put a fitness center in that, that floundered within six to twelve months. You know, and so um, I, you know, talked to the money guys that I was working for and I said, you know, let me put in a a small practice field, you know, up on the mezzanine where that fitness center was. And I think I can pack it, you know, and it turned out to be a dream because that field, you know, at least all winter long was packed and you ended up being trained on that field. And so, you know, um, you know, my, my hunch that I could keep that field busy, you know, not just the big fields that we had, but the small field uh, turned into actually when I left that organization, but went back there to train you and, and the other players that played for the teams, the early teams in the club, um, we used that field till the cows came home, you know? And so, the, you know, running the indoor facilities gave me a background in how to structure an indoor environment uh, to make money, but also, you know, to make money, you've got to get a lot of people in a small space. That was one of the principles. The more people you can get in a small space, you know, that are paying, the more money you make. So, you know, it, it works from a financial perspective to, you know, to pack areas with as many people as you can. Well, um, in putting a lot of people on that small field, you know, and training my own teams on that small field, it, it started to become obvious to me that it was an incredible environment for developing skill. And as long as you use the walls, you could actually create a shooting environment where you'd bang the ball against the wall, it would come back. And because you had 18 players using the nine, eight-foot goals that, that the side of that field comprised when we put down cones, you know, we could actually have this incredibly... Um, specific and applicable training area 
that would put you under pressures that you would find actually in the game, which is, you know, when you get the ball in the box, there's three defenders around you. Yeah, you know, a hole. And that's exactly right. Now, in our shooting games, there was nobody trying to tackle you. But when that ball came back off the wall from the other opponent's shot, you had to bang it quickly first time or you had to take a touch. And so if you took a touch the wrong way, you ran into two other people. You know, so, you know, you had to be aware of what was around you and where the best space was for you to prepare the ball. And a lot of times that would beat your weak foot. And I'm a great believer that we work on our strong foot as much as humanly possible to develop the margin of greatness. But, you know, when you have to, you have to put the ball on your weak foot if you can't get a shot off on your strong foot. So we became good with both feet just because of the environment and the rules that we set up. You know, 1,001, 1,002 count. Yeah, it had to be quick. You had to do a great first touch. You know, bad first touch, you lost the point. Because yep. your opponent would claim it. You know, if it was anywhere near two seconds, you know, they're saying, that's my point, my point. You know, and, and so we were self-reporting honorably on our scores. Sometimes not so honorably, but that's the nature of kids. You know, but, you know, it was an incredibly active, crazy situation that was very close to what you would find in the penalty area outdoors, you know, and that was, you know, an iteration that had gone beyond the outside cone lines, you know, which was great because we had the two-second rule out there, Same. you know, which is much better than working shooting in the penalty area, you know, but when you have the cone lines, it doesn't move as fast. There's not so many players in that crowded area. And so, so that was the next iteration, and, and I learned that by going into a racquetball court with friends, just and beating up on a ball, but the racquetball court was too big. You know, so after working on that practice field, um, the next iteration was, you know, um, getting our club into its own facility rather than renting yeah. practice fields that had one of those fields in. And then, as you know, we had just enough t you know space left over in our first indoor center that we put in a 36 by 12 box soccer court. Only because we had that space available. We call it soccer squash then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and so we were in total experimentation mode, but it was kind of we lucked into having this 36 by 12 area. So we boarded it and then you and I would go in there and yep. play against each other mm -hmm. and love it. You know, but it, it, it was, we didn't realize at the time, it was too much of a corridor. It was too much of straightforward shots only. Right, yeah, because yeah. it was 36 feet long. And so it wasn't until we were, you know, and I specifically was the guy that, you know, um, was at the core of building these facilities, actually doing the grunt work. And, you know, we moved to an 11,700 know, square foot space, you know, and I wanted to put a big field in, a small field in, but it didn't leave us enough space for any more than four or five of those longer courts. And here's what's interesting is at that point in time, I read the book by Matthew Syed, Bounce, you know, and he talked about how Desmond Douglas, the greatest English te table tennis player of all time, had um, developed his talent because the schoolroom that he grew up playing table tennis in only had four feet between the ends of the table and the wall. So Douglas literally had to stay bellied up to the table and his whole pro career, he hardly ever ventured from bellied up to the table. And they thought that he had these incredible reactions. And it turned out when they tested the reactions, that his reactions were the slowest on the whole of multiple English table tennis squads. His scientific reaction. I see something and I move to react to it. Right, yeah. So the men's, the women's, the youth players, everybody had a better reaction time than he did. In fact, the reaction time testers had a better reaction time than he did. <laughs> so so how did this guy with poor reactions end up to be the superstar of English English table tennis? Pl playing, a t uh, playing a style that would suggest that you need better reactions than most. Right, exactly. You know, close to the table. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so um, his asset was, as, as, as Matthew Syed found out when he went to interview him, his asset was this little schoolroom because at the end of the school day, they would move all of the desks and the chairs to one end, roll out the table tennis tables, and between the end of the tables and the wall, there was four feet, just enough to stand there and swing a table tennis bat. You know, and so he developed in this fast, tight situation where he didn't have the option to back away from the table and play defense and, and you know, just by attrition, you know, wear the opponent Survive. down. Yeah, survival until kind of the way that I used to play tennis. I was quick around the court. And so I got to play a decent level of tennis. I played a few times with my college team when they were short players, you know, because I could get the ball back until the other player made a mistake 
Well, Douglas was the opposite. He was that maverick right at the edge of the table. And here's what happened, and they worked it out together, Syed and Douglas, that instead of becoming reactive, he became predictive. So it wasn't about his ability to react to the opponent's shot. It was actually he developed by staying close to the table an ability to know where the opponent's shot was going and be there before the other guy took the shot, because the table tennis ball moves at incredible speed, you know. And so he became this predictive guy, and that's what gradually happened in our club, because we got into this 36 by 12 avenue, you know, and we loved it and we thought it was great. But when I had to fit nine box soccer courts into our new 11,700 square foot training space. And nine because two kids per court is 18, and that's the size of that, a full roster. That was at the time, you know, yep. th there wasn't any flexibility. You, you were yep. only allowed 18 on a roster, and I had a bunch of teams at 18 players. And so when I didn't have the space available, you know, I read that book, and it was like God had presented me with that book just at that moment. I went home exhausted, you know, bleeding knuckles from trying to do construction jobs that I wasn't very good at, you know, and, you know, so I'm in the bathroom late at night and I read that chapter in the book and I'm like, oh, you idiot, you know, and so I literally had all the materials. I bought all the materials and, and so I made a 20-foot uh, court with a 12-foot back end and a 12-foot front end as an experimental court and then I brought you know, my old buddy Brent Peterson and his team in to test it with his players, you know, and it was brilliant. Because now you've got the ball coming from all angles, from behind players, off the sidewalls, and dropping and bouncing balls just like in the penalty area. It, it predicts, it, 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 it more represents a game, right? Because you're catching balls that are coming off the back wall. And right. And because the, through the balls. court was so small, through balls, right? right? They'll slip through balls, right? You're catching balls that are coming from the sidewall, you know, like across. Um, and you're catching balls coming off the front wall like a rebound from the keeper of the post. Right. And it's such a simple idea. You know, you build, you know, eight foot all the way around with a net over the top so the ball can't escape. So the ball is always in play no matter what it hits, whether it's the mesh over the top, you know, because we've got metal, you know, cage mesh over the top now that just keeps the ball in play and doesn't alter the, the line of the flight of the ball. And so, you know, what we've got is we've got this totally active, crazy you know, you're in there twisting and turning and anticipating and attacking the ball, you know, taking off of the back wall, the side wall, taking volleys, you know, half volleys, you know, and, and, and I was able to put nine of these courts in this space and we had incredible use of space, effective use of space. There was no dead space in that facility. We had three teams in there, the older teams using the big field, the younger teams using the small field and a whole team using those, those nine box soccer courts, two players on a court. And it changed the game massively again over using the sidewalls of the bigger fields that you grew up doing you know, mm -hmm. in All-American Indoor Sports. And, and, I mean, that was in 20, 2012. I, my math counting backwards would have been 2012 when we opened that facility because we opened the first facility in 2009. I'll bow down to you. Great. Cool. And I'm pretty yeah. sure it was a three-year lease on that first one. But, like, we opened that facility in 2012, 10 years on. For our we club. had a five-year lease on that facility. Oh, yeah, so then it had been 2014. It overlapped for two years. Oh, you're right. So and it did open. Then we dropped that lease dropped and we that. moved in here. Yeah. So 2012 would be correct. So 10 years on from this investment in smaller box soccer courts, right? And that investment, it wasn't the only investment we've made, right? That we've got 56 or whatever box soccer courts in this facility alone, not to even include the box soccer courts we have on, on the Missouri side of the state line. Um, but... 10 years on, the goals that our players are scoring are otherworldly. And it, and it was an investment in the right environment. And, I mean, are, are there potential improvements that could be made on the environment that we have? Yeah, but, I mean, honestly, we think about it all the time. We haven't come, up, come up with any significant ones in seven or eight years, probably, maybe even nine years. Um, but the goals that our kids are scoring are off the charts. They're and otherworldly. Mm -hmm. I, absolutely, and and if and if you don't believe us, hop onto our social media and look. Like, like Philippe is doing a fantastic job at farming these clips from kids within the club, and it's happening at all age groups. And what does that do to a player's confidence, a player's psyche, when they can bury the ball like that, and they can see them doing? Because yeah. that makes That's a, a good point. ton of difference. One thing is you remember you did it, and I mean your vision in the moment. And like the people are there, oh, that was nice. The other thing is like, you first of all, sharing with more people, and you're like actually 
being able to look yourself and have that reaction. Oh my God, that's what I did, you know? It's, so, it's you fantastic. Know, I went through this with my daughter, you know, and you know, one, one year I took all of my stat sheets and it turned out that she had taken them on playing wall ball on the fields or box soccer, she'd actually taken between 60 and 80,000 shots in one year, which is ungodly, you know, with all the practices that we'd run and, you know, the times that she was up here. And, and so, you know, she developed this ability to put the ball pretty much where she wanted, you know, with, with a, you know, shoot in and her self-concept because she could score you know, and, you know, and people wanted to win. So her teammates got her the ball, you know, whether it was in ODP, she played on the futsal national team, you know, without having ever played futsal before, you know, and, you know, she, she had this, uh, this belief, this leadership belief, you know, now here's what mostly happens to kids when they're given a shooting opportunity, they panic, they're scared, they don't want to take it, they want to give it to somebody else because they haven't had the repetitions that they need to build the confidence. Certainly, and, certainly at that preteen teenage group when peer opinion matters a lot. So, um, so I, you know, I've got this you know, player that used to play for me. And you know, we have instituted this highlight tape you know, a phenomenon because it's, it's changing the game for our club. And it's only been going for four or five weeks. Yep. You know, and so we've been putting out highlights that parents have recorded or we've been getting off of those, you know, those halfway line you know, automatic recording cameras. And there's some absolutely incredible highlights out there. And, you know, this, this player that used to play for me, TJ Hackler, uh, has got this amazing athlete daughter, JC. And she's fast and she's big and she's strong because TJ and his wife ran track for KU. You know, TJ played soccer, but he eventually was a track star for KU. And so was his wife. So JC's got this incredible gene pool you know, and so she's big, she's fast, she's strong. And, and he was complaining to me that, you know, she's just not using her moves. She's not, you know, really going for it. You know, and we all know that she can do it, but there's, there's a lot of peer pressure from her teammates to pass, pass, pass. And this is even within our club, mm -hmm. you know, and we're crazy dribbling fools. So imagine what it's like in other clubs, you know, where somebody joins a club. And this happened to my daughter you know, when she was the youngest player playing up and we didn't have a good enough team for her to play on within our club, she had to go and play with other clubs. Immediately, she got pressured into doing something that she'd never had to do with our club, which was just give the ball away to somebody because that was what was expected and she wasn't going to be accepted into that friendship circle if she did a normal dribbling shooting thing and took over games and scored a hat-trick. You know, it was actually a negative to be a brilliant player in the other clubs that, you know, that she played for. And it, to a certain degree, it's that way in college, you know, where the other players, when you're a freshman coming into a college team and you're that greedy freshman, even if you can score great goals, the other players don't want to see it because it reflects badly on them that you're doing things that they can't even dream of doing. So there's amazing pressure. But let's get back to JC because we've been having these conversations, TJ and myself, about JC for a long time. You know, and, you know, and so we introduced this highlight video thing and Philippe has done an amazing job of, you know, of organizing this whole system where everybody now in our club knows about, maybe everybody doesn't even know about it yet. But, but many, many dudes growing every week. Yeah, right, so that we're getting these videos sent in of these kids because parents are now pulling their phone out and they're videoing their kids when they never used to before and it's only going to grow. We'll probably end up with hundreds a week at this rate, you know, and we're getting all these incredible highlights that, and we've got to vote on them and decide which is the goal of the week. Well, JC didn't make it into the top 10 or five or whatever and she's got all of this talent but she was dribbling the ball from you know in her own half and beating five people but she was doing it with cuts and athleticism you know and and then a reasonably good finish you know and and so what changed was she was actually finishing in fifth place or seventh place or not even in the top 10 and so all of a sudden now the very existence of this system and the fact that she's going to be on the highlight tape if she does a Maradona turn, if she does a scissors, and if she really goes for a great finish. Well, last week, she scored a goal with exactly that. An incredible scissors, an unbelievable Maradona turn inside the penalty area and almost on the end line. And then a chip goal, you know, just completely wonderful, chipped it over the keeper because the angle was so bad that that was the only option where she could guarantee that she could score. And it was everything we've been asking for what made it happen. 
It was the public expectation that we as a club want this incredible individual attitude, you know, the big plays. It's connected to our culture, but like water finds the easiest path. And for JC, who's exceptional, exceptional athletically, right? Like her athleticism puts her in a position where she can, she could, she could be a play for the women's national team someday, right? Because of this 100%. athleticism. But if she doesn't develop the other stuff, it's going to limit her potential. And, and, but for JC, like she can get away with, really great cuts and using her size and speed to get to get through and it's and what makes her dad so special is that he sees it he recognizes the value of the scissors and the maradona to the rest of what she's got and don't get me wrong jc works really hard she's a very hard great kid yeah great kid very hard working but when water water finds the easiest level and 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 that goes for any kid any person right and they're going to take the 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 path of least resistance unless we figure out how to from a cultural perspective motivate and expect more right and and the two most scary skills are shooting and dribbling yes you know because you know if you fail with your shot you know then you've wasted all the effort the whole team made to get you that opportunity and that's why a lot of players that are not confident in their shooting ability not legends players because our kids take thousands upon thousands every year, you know, but these other players on other teams, they just won't take a shot because they're so scared, you know, to let their teammates down that they're not willing to step up and take the responsibility. Well, we're training kids for life, you know, and so if you're not scared to take a shot, not scared to take on one, two, three players, right, then the next environment that you have to show leadership skills in is not going to be as public and exposed you know, as 11 opponents, 10 teammates, you know, a whole bunch of other teammates and opponents on the sideline, a sideline packed with spectators, you know, and now, you know, you're under the camera, you know. So, you know, if these players that haven't been trained to be great finishers are going to chicken out under any type of pressure. The, the bigger the pressure, the more they're going to chicken out. Yeah. The peer pressure, if you go to a team that doesn't encourage that, and I kid you not, players that leave us, they go and play for another team, Inside six months, you can see they're not a fraction of the player they were when they played for us. You give them two years, they're not even using moves. You use it or you lose it. Exactly. Yeah. They're not even using moves, and their shooting skills have diminished to where they're lucky to score a goal every 10 shots, you know, whereas they were scoring a goal every second shot with us. You know? And so it, it's one of those things that you're actually destroying your kid's leadership ability in life because the general public doesn't like... Somebody that comes in and wants to show them a better version, you know, and because it reflects on them that they don't have that ability. So when you go into group situations, and soccer's a team game where every other player cannot dribble and shoot like you are, they're going to do everything they can. Unfortunately, in girls' soccer, a little bit worse than boys, because girls are, hey, we, we go along to get along. You know, yeah. we, we circle the wagons around the group and we're a family. So it's not approved of for girls to stand out. So shooting goes into the tank really quickly. Deceptive dribbling goes into the tank really quickly. Boys are a little bit more, I'm going to show you what I can do. Yeah. Hunter, warrior, gatherer. Yeah. You, know, it's, you know, this is the boys' MO. Girls, not. You know, there's less girls players that take people on at the highest level in world soccer by far than guys that take people on at the highest level of world soccer. Yeah. Again, leaning into the culture, our culture has, has suggested that. Um, I, I want to share a story and we're going to be, uh, uh, finishing up part one where we've talked about, hopefully you buy into the value of, 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 of focusing on shooting. And then part two, we're going to really dig into the how piece of that in terms of what we do in, in nuts and bolts. But Cal, my, my youngest, who's just turned nine, uh, a little bit more than a year ago, he was seven years old, a U8, and we're in St. Louis for a tournament. And this is like, this is like my, that team's like part of our lore. They lo everybody loves telling the story. Cal goes to take, or he gets, there's a foul, and it happens literally at the tee on the, the sideline where the halfway meets the sideline. A foul right there, right in front of the bench. Um, and and uh, Cal goes, Dad, can I take it? I was like, yeah, sure, Cal, you can have it. He turns to the referee. Is it direct or indirect? And like I started dying because like Cal is full of confidence. There is no way on God's green earth he can get it to the box, but he's shooting. Like he is absolutely shooting. <laughs> Ref, is it direct or indirect? The ref is like, uh, direct. <laughs> like, why are you asking me? And that I I love that you shared that because that happened. I had the same thought this weekend. So I'm playing National League Premier One, and you know, one of my kids is a phenomenal player he's playing in europe and he's tiny is this Even, ashwin yeah he's so good 
It's, I mean, he's playing, we were playing a 4-3-3, he's playing a number eight, box to box, a year up. He's getting kicked left and right every single game because he holds on to the ball. He never passes first time. He always beats the first defender, then looks up and find find a player and sometimes find the next defender to beat. And it's just unbelievable to watch him play. Happened three times this weekend. He's on an offensive position. He gets the ball, beats a player with like a double scissor, cuts in, and he's 25 yards out. He doesn't have shooting technique. It's perfect. He can shoot very well. He doesn't have the power in his legs to score from that. And he's taking the shot. Keep in mind, we're playing Premier One, National League. It really matters. And my competitiveness in me was like, I should probably tell Ashwin, hey, you're probably not going to score from there now. Trying to find a runner, trying to find something else, try to keep dribbling. But then I thought, man, he's having the right idea. What he's doing is the right thing. Might not be the right thing to win a game or for him to score the goal now, but for him to have that confidence and that even decision-making is what's important. One, two years from now, once he gets the next growth spurt, pu puberty, whatever, I mean, he's going to score. Honestly, he shoots very well. He's going to score every single goal from there. So yeah. I, if I tell him not to shoot there, what am I going to do if he doesn't shoot that ball from the next one, two years? He's just going to stop doing it. Yeah, you're limit, we're, limiting, exactly. we're limiting his long-term so, growth. And that's the value is long-term over short-term every day of the week. I had this girl called Crystal Burns that played for me that uh, played you know, uh, mostly center, center striker. Uh, although I rotate my attack and defense halfway through every season so that everybody gets a chance to play up and back. And, uh, and, and Crystal, I used to encourage all my players to shoot you know, from in downtown. You know, and Crystal would take these shots when she was 12 years of age you know, that would literally roll slowly to the goalkeeper from 40 yards. You know. But fast forward, and she sent me this clip when she was playing Division One in college, you know, and she hit this 40-yard shot that was an absolute missile. It was a scud. It was an exocet, you know, and it, you know, top corner of the net from downtown Charlie Brown, you know, and it was the result of all of that encouragement I gave her instead of saying, don't do it, you know, and so she was able to score this absolutely one in a million goal that only the very brilliant players would even make that attempt. And which one was more re rewarding for you, seeing her score at age 12, playing for you, for you to win the Midwest whatever cup, or getting a kid from her in college, you know, smashing that ball. And fast forward eight years later, hey, Andy, thank you for making me good enough to do this. And Which well, one was more rewarding for you? And this is a disease within our society. Most coaches value the immediate win. Correct. And so they will put the individual development of their players on the back burner, you know, in it's order... priority number two, not priority number one. Yeah, in, in order to get the win, you know, so... It will be, you know, hey, Crystal, don't take the you know, shot from there. You know, pass the ball to somebody that's closer that's got a realistic chance of scoring. Yeah. But what they're doing is they're robbing the future because they have no vision or they're so selfish that they just want to win today for their own ego. You know, but it's not about the development of their kids. And this is actually the vast majority of coaches in, in youth soccer. Yeah. Uh, you know, and probably in, in other sports as well. But, you know, th there's so much evidence out there. And one of the things that people, they, they say, you know, oh, you've got a whole new original philosophy. And I say, no, I don't. The great players in history have all grown up, similarly. grown up in similar circumstances, banging a tennis ball against walls for hours on end. You know, and across other sports, you know, did you know that Novak Djokovic, you know, grew up learning to hit a ball in an empty swimming pool? So, you know, you know, he could place the ball in the corner and it, you know, of, the, of the deep end from the shallow end and the ball would hit the sidewall on the way back to him so that he didn't have to chase it, you know, as it came off of the, the front wall. So he got thousands of extra repetitions because he had literally across the street from where he lived was an abandoned swimming pool. You know, and so there's all of these clues from the great players in, in, in all ball sports, you know, what would, for example, uh, Magic Johnson have done if he didn't have a backboard? You know, and every shot he took was like netball in England, which is just a hoop on top of a pole. You know, and when you shoot, you got to go collect the ball after missing your shot. You know, you know, and and so you know, 
all of the basketball players can hit these great three-point shots, can stand there, and as long as they've got reasonable accuracy, the ball at least comes back to them mm-hmm. or somewhat close to them off of the backboard. But if you were to take away the backboard you know, and just shoot on the hoop, which is the goal, then the number of repetitions would tank and you wouldn't have a Steph Curry today. Yep. You know, and so you know, you've got to set up the environment for repetition. I but think that's a perfect uh, uh, thing to go into our next episode and dig deep into because I have quotes from Brazilian players yeah. and stuff all about repetition and walls and, and all that kind of stuff. As we put a bow on so, this So one what now. you're doing is you're saying this has got to come to an end right now and you're a typical Brazilian. Because you got brought up in Brazil and because you can beat six players and score goals from 40 yards, you think you can dictate to the poor Englishman and the poor American that we have to finish the podcast now. <laughs> well, this poor American needs to finish it now too. But hey, to I'm, put try- a, I'm trying to help him out because he got to go. But to put, a bu- put a, to put a bow on that, Andy, is, is you're right. Like, like, this isn't new. What we're doing is not new. It's actually the complete opposite. Like after years and years of study of the greatest players across many different disciplines, we're just institutionalizing those concepts that they employed that helped them get to the level and making making it uh, making it available to everyone, not just the elite athlete, not so, just the athlete that grew up in the favelas of Brazil, not just the athlete right. that, that uh, we're making it available to everybody within our club. So, you know, and, and everybody likes to come up with a big new thing, right? Instead of recognizing what people have done, you know, that's been really successful forever. And so I'm, I'm reading about all of the, um, the innovations that happen in Germany right now. And one of the big things is that they're recommending that you practice using four goals, you know, at, you know, at, at 12 o'clock, at, at 3 o'clock, at 6 o'clock, at 9 o'clock, you know, and you allow the players to go to any goal. And, and they're recommending this for the whole youth system throughout the country, apparently, you know, according to the article that I presumed was accurate because it came from a reliable source. It's absolutely ridiculous. You know, you want your kids going for the target, the opposing goal. You want them going directional. You want them finding their way through a crowd. You, you want don't it to want be to give difficult. Them, they'll like, make it easier. They're like Spain and South Africa if you have them go into four goals because they can turn away from pressure and score by going backwards. It's fantastic if you want to keep possession and play defense the whole time. It's but is it? Because my teams, whenever I switch to just keep in possession, because you know we were a goal up in the last ten minutes of State Cup, you know, and I did that. I game management, they call it, and I don't like it today. You know, because youth soccer, we shouldn't be about winning and game management. Every second should be spent developing. You know, and so you know, the, the minute that I switch, because I train my players to be incredible dribblers, the minute I said, "Okay, guys, just keep it," the other team couldn't get the ball. Well, okay, so I, I, sh- I shouldn't say it's fantastic for that, but that's the goal that they're looking to create. They're looking to create. A, a, a but if you want to keep the ball, you teach your players to be incredible dribblers mm-hmm. and shooters mm-hmm. because then doing a move they and coming away from off. pressure yeah. you know, and passing the pass. ball is a breeze. Yeah, they choose when they pass. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to pass because the pressure comes. You, know, you can yawn at the pressure and you know, do a quick move mm-hmm. and create a yard and give a pass to a teammate that's behind you yeah. just to keep the ball. Yeah. So sure. whenever we switched to just keeping the ball, we were brilliant at it, having never done it. Yep. We were brilliant at it. Well, um, I've enjoyed this one. And so if you enjoyed listening to this one, I can tell you the next one's going to be we, better. Can Philippe we part has, two tomorrow? Uh, maybe. I'll have to look at my schedule. We'll talk about that. But um, <laughs> we can get it out quick. Um, but Philippe has so many quotes to share. And I can look at Andy's uh, in front of him. And there's not very many of those notes that are going to be moving. So good stuff to coming up on the next one. Philippe, Andy, thanks again. This was fun. Thank you. Great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.